This morning we're going to be continuing our series of sermons through all of the doctrines of God's Word. This will be the 17th in the series and be the fourth on the subject of the spiritual nature of God. Do ask your attention this morning. This will be the final message on this subject and we're going to make some applications which I think are very pertinent to us as a church and to Christendom at large. We're going to be dealing now with this aspect of God's spiritual nature as it relates to our lives in the subject of spiritual discernment. Spiritual discernment. How can we discern what is of God and what is not of God? Invite your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and beginning in verse 12. We have seen that God is a spirit and that he is not a human being such as you and I. He is to be worshipped as a spirit. And that true spiritual worship affects our salvation, our, that is, our justification, our holiness of life, and ultimately even our glorification. And that true spiritual worship comes from a new heart which is implanted in our life what is called a spiritual circumcision which enables us to rejoice in the truth that's in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, the question is this. How can we, as God's people, discern what is true and what is false worship? Is there a difference and how can we know the difference? I read in the newspaper last week that one uh, half or one-third of all Americans, let's see, I get it straight here, one-third of all Protestants in the United States claim to be born again and one-half of all Americans claim to be born again Christians. And that's an outstanding number when you figure it out. And yet, at the same time, in the history of our country, never have we had more crime, more immorality, and more problems that we're facing with. Now, I ask the question, have we lost the meaning of the term born again? And if half of the American people are born again Christians, then how can we possibly have all of the corresponding evils in our society at the same time? How can we discern what is true and what is false? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. That is, the things which be of God, they must be discerned spiritually. And the natural man cannot make that, uh, that ability to discern. He does not possess it. But he that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judge of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. So Paul is dealing with spiritual discernment, spiritual judgment. And we're wanting to make this application. 
this morning as we go through this sermon, how can you discern whether your church, your pastor, your Sunday school class, your denomination is spiritual or not? How can you know whether that it is truly exhibiting worship which is acceptable to God? If you were to make that criteria, or you were given the criteria for examining your own life or the, the life of this church, how would you discern whether this church is spiritual or not? How would you discern whether your life was spiritual or not? Your pastor, your young people's department, how can we make this judgment? Now notice that he that is spiritual judges all things. Now I invite your attention to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, from the portion taken from our Lord's Sermon on the Mount, that greatest sermon that has probably ever been preached, from the words of that sermon, I want to read to you these words. Beginning in verse 13, the Lord says, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because Straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. Now notice, beloved, few there be that find it. Few there be that find it. In light of these words, not every person which claims to be a born-again person in the United States has entered the straight gate and is on the narrow way. Few there be that find it. Now, right after he makes this statement, setting forth the nature that of true conversion, that true conversion is a very narrow thing. That is, it's a narrow gate. While that it is simple, it is not easy. Salvation is simple. It is through repentance and faith in Christ. But it is not easy. Because there be few that find it, and there's a corresponding way which is very broad, and many in that way are on the way to destruction. Now, after having set this forth, in verse 15 he says these words, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are raving wolves. Now, it's interesting in the Lord's scheduling of this statement. Right after he sets forth the true way of conversion and the straight gate, he brings up the subject of false teachings and false prophets. Which, if you can get the picture, it's this. Right by that narrow way which leads unto life, there are false prophets with all sorts of teachings which would broaden up this way and lead people into that way which leads unto destruction. So that where there's the true, right beside it, there's the false. Now, how are you going to discern between the true and the false when the false prophet comes in sheep's clothing? He has all the appearance of what is the real thing, and yet inwardly he reveals his true character, which is that of destruction. Now, Jesus said, Ye shall know them by their fruits. Now notice he doesn't say just the preachers, but he says you, all you who would enter into life, you shall know what is the false and what is the true. 
And the evidence is in the truth or the nature of the teaching of the false prophets. Now I want to ask a question this morning. Is there anyone here that is not interested in your eternal destiny today? You don't care whether you go to heaven or hell. You don't even care whether there is a heaven or hell. I trust there's no one like that here today. But I want to ask those of you who are interested in this. Are you interested enough in it that you want to discern and have an interest in discerning between what is true and what is false? For Jesus says to those people who are pressing to enter into life, you shall know the difference between the true and the false. He says, goes on, he says, Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Do you go out and off of a tree of thistles and thorns, do you gather grapes? Now, you may find a cluster of grapes in the, those thistles, but they didn't grow on that tree. Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that it bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire, wherefore by their fruits you shall know them. Now, I want us to look at this passage of Scripture to see the difference between, first of all, true conversion and the false prophet. True conversion is that which is set forth in verses 13 and 14. It is described as a straight gate and a narrow way. And false conversion is described as a broad gate and a broad way, or a wide way. And there are a few which are experiencing true conversion, and there are many which are entering into a broad way which leads into destruction. Now, right beside that gate, the true and the narrow, there are all types of false prophets. Now, what is a false prophet? Listen carefully. A false prophet is any preacher, any book, any tract, or any teaching which claims to speak as a representative of God's truth, but in reality does not. A false prophet is anything which claims to be the truth of God, but yet in reality it is not. What is a characteristic of a false prophet? You go back in the Old Testament, and the prophet Isaiah, I believe it is, tells us what a false prophet is. It's one which cries, peace, peace, when there is no peace. That is, he gives assurance when there is no basis for assurance. And a false prophet is one who makes the gate very wide and the way more agreeable to fallen human nature. That is, what is a false prophet? He's one which takes the way of salvation and makes it agreeable to fallen man. What is most agreeable to man's nature, that's what he makes salvation to be. So he widens up the gate. Now, fallen man is opposed to salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so the false prophet teaches some system of works or some system that would appeal to the fallen nature of man, whereby man can maintain his pride, his self-respect, 
and everything and go right on to heaven. But remember, the straight gate, Jesus also described salvation as being it easier for a, or a man or a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. In order to enter into eternal life, there must be a green roll, a submission, an humbling before one can enter into life. The false prophet is one which allows man to maintain his own pride and self-respect and walk on through the broad way which leads to destruction. Now, how shall the false prophets be known? Now, Jesus said, ye shall know them, ye shall. Not just a few spiritually elite, but you which are pressing into heaven, you can and you shall know them, and there is a way, and it is by their fruits. Now, secondly, I want us to look at the difference between natural discernment and spiritual discernment. If I ask you today, how do you know whether God's in a movement, whether he's in this and he's not here? How, do you, how would you make that discernment? Well, here are some of the ways that God is discerned to be present today. First of all, some say God is present when there are great numbers in existence. And many preachers reason like this. They say God must be here because there's a great crowd, but he must not be here because there's only a few. And this is the criteria by whether a group or a movement is spiritual or not, by how large a crowd the effort draws. And so they say, well, if this church has 500 in its attendance, then God must be there, because look at the crowd. And if this church has but 50 in attendance, well, God must not be there because the crowd isn't there. And so this is the way that spirituality is discerned today by the role of numbers. But let's see if this is really true. Does numbers in and of itself indicate spirituality? And for indication of this, for chapter and verse, all we have to do is go back in the Old Testament and look at Elijah and the prophets of Baal. The one man stood for God's truth, and 450 of the prophets of Baal stood for error. The error, error had all of the numbers. God had one man. Now, if you were a bystander there, and you were asked to discern which is the group which God belongs to, how would you have discerned that? Would you have said, God must be here because there's 450 preachers here and there's only one preacher here? And if you would have reasoned thus, you would have been wrong. Because God vindicated his truth with the one man. Numbers in and of itself is not indicative of spirituality. And it is our lack of spiritual discernment which is bringing chaos into our nation our churches, our families, and our individual Christian life, in that we are losing the ability to discern what true spirituality is. I was reading recently of a certain Christian movie that was attracting great crowds, and an advertisement in a paper was reasoning like this, how do you know whether that this is an instrument of God? 
How do you know that this particular movie is an instrument in God's hand and God is using it? And it is said, now as Christians, you ought to be able to know that. And so how did it then give the criteria for whether this particular movie was being used of God or not? It said, first of all, in St. Louis, Missouri, there were so many thousands that came to see it. And in that same city, there were so many hundreds which made decisions. Therefore, on the basis that thousands came to see it, and many hundreds made decisions, it was, without a doubt, an instrument in the hand of God. And then right underneath that article, it went on to describe how that 500 people had been assigned to promote this particular film. One dairy imprinted the name of the film on two million cartons of milk. 500 buses in the city put the particular film on the side of the bus. The DJs on radio and TV advertised the film. Now, what does that prove? Does it prove that because thousands of people came to see it, that that was of God? Well, no, my friend, all it proves there was a tremendous job of promotion done on that film. The same group could take the Beatles, the Rolling Stone, the Supremes, and get the same crowd with the same amount of advertising. The fact that God was in it because great numbers came to see it has little to do with whether or not it was an instrument in the hands of God. Now, another thing. How do we discern? What about zeal? You say, well, Pastor, the Lord must be in this because look how zealous the people are for what they believe. God must be here because there's a lot of zeal in this church and this church over here, there's not much going on. They're not very excited. Now, is that the way you would discern spirituality? If it be true, then you would have judged the Apostle Paul before his conversion as being one of the most godly men that ever lived. Because he said, as touching the church, I persecuted it. I killed Christians. And I thought when I was doing it, I was doing it for God's name. And if you would have judged Paul strictly by the fact of how zealous he was for his religion, you would have judged him as being a very righteous man before God, and you would have been wrong. Zeal, in and of itself, does not necessarily mean that God is in that particular undertaking. What about growth? Do you judge spirituality by growth? I received a bulletin. I get them about every week, but received one the other day from a certain Christian college. And they said, we're bursting at the seams. We just can't get any more in. Look what God is doing. That is, 2,500 enrollment, God is here because we can't take any more into this college. And thereby, because they had grown to these proportions, they judged that God was in it. But what does that prove? You go to secular colleges and they're bursting at the seams. They're the trade schools, they're bursting at the seams. And all that that proves is this that kids nowadays are wanting an education. That's all it proves and nothing more. The very fact that a Christian college is full and the very fact that a non-Christian college is full 
the Christian college cannot say, this is what God is doing, just because we have a full enrollment. Growth is not the criteria for spirituality. What about buildings? Is that the criteria for whether God is in something or not? You go out to a pastor's conferences today, and one of the first things they want to know, when's the, how long has it been since you built? <laughs> and if you can throw back your shoulders as a preacher and say, I just poured $250,000 into a building, oh, God's there. God's there. But if you have to say, well, we haven't built in five years now, well, that's too bad. We'll pray for you. You see? This is the criteria for whether God is in something or not. You say, well, Pastor, you're just jealous because you don't have a great big beautiful building. I'm well pleased with this building, but I have been through building programs. I've built some beautiful buildings. It's all sounding brass and tinkling symbol without the Spirit of God, my friend. You say, well, is that scriptural? Let me show you something about a Jesus' reaction to a building program. In Matthew chapter 13, in verse 1. I'm sorry, Mark chapter 13, in verse 1. And as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples saith unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. See this, Master? What do you think of a new building? And Jesus answering said unto him, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. I imagine that took some of the wind out of their sails. Here was a great building, the temple. Master, aren't these beautiful stones? What do you think about that? And Jesus said, the time is coming when there will not be one stone left standing in that building. What was he but saying? That the system of religion which was housed in that building was already under the curse of God. And you drive through communities and just because you see great, beautiful church buildings, my friend, don't you jump to the conclusion that that church houses a system of religion which is pleasing and it has spiritual worship acceptable before God. The curse of God may be on that very system which that building is setting forth. Buildings in and of themselves are not an indication that God is present. Well, now, how do you then discern if numbers by themselves are not indicative of the presence of God's zeal, growth, and buildings, then how can you discern whether that something is of God or whether it isn't? I invite your attention now to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 13. Paul says, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what? Size it is? No. Of what sort it is. Notice that the final judgment of God will come, and his final judgment will be based upon, listen, quality, not quantity. It is not the size of the individual's doings, but it is the nature of his doings, the sort of it, that's going to have to stand the test of God. Of God. 
I want to illustrate like this. Suppose there was a great artist, a great master, and he was a sculptor, and he was able to produce great masterpieces of work in his art. He could use wood, clay, plaster, and his best work was done in marble. And so he produces all of these sculptors. And at the same time, in that community, there are three phonies. And these individuals begin to copy his work. And they become very proficient at it. And they're able to take his work, which is done in wood, and they're able to duplicate it where you can't tell the difference. And they're able to take the clay and the plaster, and they're able to duplicate it to where you can't tell the difference between their work and that of the Master. So that, here's a bunch of articles, and we don't know which is which. Here are four men. And we lift up the article, and we say, which one made this? One says, I did it. Another one, I did it. No, I did it. Another one says, it's mine. And on and on. And everyone claims to be the one which made these articles. How would we be able to discern which was the master and which were the phonies? Would we go to the wood? No. Would we go to the clay? No. Because the phonies are able to duplicate that. And the plaster? No. Where would we go? We would go to the marble and the precious stones because there it takes such an art that only the master can produce that. The phonies cannot imitate it. And my friends, the way that we discern between what is true and what is false is that we look at what the master alone can produce. And he alone, Jesus Christ, can produce something that the devil and the flesh cannot imitate. In all of numbers, can God produce numbers? Yes. The day of Pentecost, 3,000. Can the flesh produce numbers? Yes. Can the devil bring crowds? Yes, he can. Is God in zeal? Look at the early apostles and see how zealous they were. But the devil and the flesh can also produce zeal. What about growth? Look how the early Christian faith has grown to the proportion it has today. Can the devil produce growth? Yes, he can. Is God in buildings? Yes. God gave the dimensions of the temple to build. But can the devil and the flesh produce buildings? Yes, they can. You say, well, Pastor, you're making it awful difficult. How, if God can do this and the devil can do this and the flesh, how can I really know then what is the criteria for determining spirituality? And the answer is this. Only God can produce true fruit. Only God can produce it. The flesh can't. Now, the fraud cannot reproduce in the marble. Only the master can do that. What is the true fruit of God? What is the true criteria for judging a pastor, a preacher's ministry, a church's ministry, a denomination's ministry, and the criteria for your own personal Christian life? And the answer is this. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. 
Here is something that only God the Holy Spirit can produce. The devil and the flesh cannot produce this. The devil can imitate in many areas, but he cannot imitate here. In Matthew chapter 5, we have what is known as the Beatitudes, those blessed characters of true Christians. Now, this may be sort of cutting, but let's examine and fall prostrate before God and see whether or not that this is our characteristic of a Christian. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the what? Poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. My friend, the devil and the flesh cannot bring poverty of spirit. Where do you ever see a liberal church filled with people who recognize that they in and of themselves cannot produce one ounce of spiritual life? Where do you see pride and and uh, envy and jealousy stripped from people in churches that do not emphasize the true gospel? Poverty of spirit. Have you been broken and made low? Have you been humbled by the working of the Spirit of God to see that in and of yourself you're nothing? Or do you still see yourself as pretty good in the sight of God? Now you notice that what we're doing here, we're not doing what many groups do. A preacher can make a checklist, he can say, well now my, my people, they're not drinking, they're not smoking, they're not going to the movies, they're not dancing, they're not doing this, therefore they're spiritual. You notice we're not doing that. But there is a criteria which only God the Holy Spirit can produce and it cannot be imitated, and that is true poverty of spirit. Look again, blessed are they that mourn. Do you mourn in your life? Do you mourn over the fact that when you wrong that wife or that child or that friend of yours, that over that sin it causes you to confess it to God and ask for cleansing? Does that cause you to be humbled? Remember, this is a characteristic which only God produces, not a preacher, not a church. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Does your Christian experience set forth those nature, those things within our nature which are against our nature? Hunger and thirst are not pleasant experiences. Do you so desire to be like Jesus Christ that there is a hungering and thirsting experience? Well, you can't produce that. Only God can. And religion can't produce it. And my friend, modern evangelicalism isn't producing it either. When you have one half of the American people claiming to be born-again Christians, and yet you see the ungodliness and the unrighteousness which prevails throughout our land, we can only say that the medicine that's supposed to be helping the patient is not working. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sakes, for theirs is the kingdom. Now here's the essence. 
there is something so unique about the Master's work that it so sets it apart from that which religion and preachers and the phony issues of the world can imitate that the world rises up in anger against it and persecutes that. The real and the genuine. Dare we examine our own Christian experience in the light of this? Dare we examine your preacher's ministry in the light of this? Dare we examine our church in the light of that which only God produces? Remember, we can imitate, the devil can imitate, but he cannot imitate the true character internally of a Christian which only God, the Holy Spirit, can produce. If there are no beatitudes being exhibited, there is no blessedness. Well, that's the logic of this. Blessed is the person who exhibits this and such and such. That is another aspect of what we're saying. Galatians chapter 5, the fruits of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, gentleness, meekness, temperance. And notice it is the fruit of the Spirit. It is not the fruit of the Christian. It is not the fruit of the preacher. It's not the fruit of the teaching, the fruit of the church. It is God the Master working and creating fruit which Satan cannot imitate. No fruit, no working. That's why the day we examine all of our religiosity today, there I examine my ministry under the light of what is genuine. And I'll have to acknowledge, my friend, from time to time I get pretty humbled. I get pretty humbled when I see really what the nature of vital, true Christianity is. As long as I'm surrounded by great people here and in the community and wherever I go, I could say God must be with me. But when we begin to get down and examine our lives, our church, in the light of the Beatitudes, Galatians chapter 5, Philippians chapter 3, oh, my friend, my heart cries out for where are people who are made low in spirit, who are mourning over their relationship with God and desire a closer walk with Him, to where that it causes them to undergo hunger and thirst pains in order that they might have more grace to live like Jesus Christ and be like Him. And to such a degree that this brings about a purity in heart that sets them apart to where that the unregenerate in the community and the nominal Christian rises up and speaks evil against them. And they are viewed as the outcast of the world. Where are these people today? Where is this work which only the Master can produce? Where is it? Again, we close with this application. This and this alone, dear Christian, dear professor, is the criteria for evaluating your life, for evaluating your preacher, for evaluating your Sunday school class, for evaluating your youth department, for evaluating your church, for evaluating your denominational movement. But today I go from place to place and I see all of these things which are supposed to emphasize spirituality. 
And I see people running here and here and here and here like little water bugs on the surface of the water, going around in circles, going just as fast as they can and never getting anywhere. And yet at the same time, those people not exhibiting a brokenness and humility before God are realizing, oh God, if you don't come and do what only you can do, we're going to perish. Oh God, if you don't come and meet with this church, and produce in our lives that which only you can produce, we're going to have to shut the doors. Where do you find that brokenness today in congregations of believers? God help us to examine where the real criteria is. Not in the externals, but in what only God can produce internally in the heart. Now, what's this going to cause you to do? What's your reaction to this? Now, every person here today that's listened to what I've had to say is going to react one way or another. If God and God alone can produce fruit, then this is going to do one of thing, two things to you. Number one, your reaction is such that you're either going to fall down before God and humbly beseech God to move in your life or, on the other hand, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go out of here today depending upon your own abilities to get certain responses, and then you're going to say that because people respond to you, that that's the fruit of God. And that's what most ministers today are doing. Rather than being humbled and brought low to where they have to see their prayer meetings grow, you see the prayer meetings decreasing and the humanistic methods increasing today to where people are becoming less and less confident in God and becoming more and more confident in their own human abilities to do what they think is necessary, and a church feels that as long as it's doing this and this and this, and here's certain response, then God must be in it. Oh, my friend, you'll react one way or another to what I've said this morning. You Sunday school teachers, you're concerned about your class. What should you be ultimately concerned about? Whether the people in your class are becoming Christ-like or not. That should be your main concern. You that are working in the youth department, what should your concern be? It should be this. Are your young people becoming more like Jesus Christ? That's the main criteria. It burdens me. We young people today how do you judge your spiritual life? It breaks my heart when I look out across our land and I see all of this quote-unquote Christianity, which is nothing more than religiosity, and is as much under the curse of God as the Jewish system was when Jesus came the first time. And they didn't like what he taught, so they nailed him to the tree, because he said, this is what God produces, and what you're doing is only that which the flesh produces. So how do you measure a youth camp, the success of it? How do you measure a church, the success of it? 
You measure whether that a youth camp is successful because all the young people come back fired up. It may be genuine or it may not be. Or do you measure the success of a youth camp when you see those young people come back? Now listen. And they come back with an humble, broken heart over their lives before God. How would you know what's spirituality and what isn't? I dare say you could take this group of young people here today and send them away to a Mormon youth camp and they come back as excited as they do here. And I thank God for the young people that's in this church. I believe there are some young people here who do exhibit the characteristics of the Beatitudes and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But what I'm simply saying is this, is that the ultimate criteria for you measuring your own spirituality is not in the external realms. It's what the Master and He alone can produce internally in your life. Is it there? And what your reaction will be. It will either drive you down on your face before God and say, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Or else you go on your way like the Pharisee. I thank you, Lord, I'm not as this man. I fast and I tithe, therefore you must be with me. I do this. I don't eat two days out of the week. I give a tenth of all of my income. And then you go on your way through your church anity, assuming that because you're doing these acts that God is with you. And all you've done is that because certain things are responding in your life, that you judge God's presence in it. So what I'm simply saying is this, that when God begins to break hearts, and He begins to produce what only He can produce, we need to look for it in the realm of the spiritual, because God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Dare I, Jim Gables, go home today and examine my ministry in the light of what I've just said this morning? Dare I go home and examine my home and see whether it's a Christian home in the light of the Beatitudes and the fruits of the Holy Spirit? Dare I go home and examine my relationship to my church and see whether that my preaching is such that it is that which destroys confidence in the flesh and gives all glory unto Jesus Christ? Dare I examine that? Or can I leave here today and because I've chalked up another time, I've spent another 35, 40 minutes now, I've done my job, it's all over, we can go home, God was present today. And be pleased that because the Sunday school attendance was comparable to what it was last week and because the crowds are, are here, that God must be in our midst. Dare I do that, dare you do that. Remember, the world and the flesh and the devil can imitate the work of the Master in every area except that which only the Master works in, the marble, which cannot be imitated. And the devil cannot imitate true Christian character that sets it apart so that the world despises that person. 
and that the fruit of the Holy Spirit is manifested in that individual's life. Let's stand together.